Hey everyone, welcome to the 63rd episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Alright, so I interviewed Scott Horton and we recorded this on September 8th, 2021. Honestly, this is probably the best podcast that I've recorded with Scott. You're really going to want to hear this one. I asked about his reflections on the Afghanistan war, being that he really is the guy on the subject and he, he specialized it in the last 20 years, how it feels now that the war is over. And just reflecting on how it went, we get into some of the earlier stuff and how we let Osama bin Laden go and the details there. And then the later half is about how we botched the withdrawal. And it's just another symptom of how bad government is at doing literally everything. So you're really going to want to listen to this one. And uh, I'll link to everything in all of Scott's books and antiwar.com. You should also check out my interview that I did with Dave DeCamp this week. It's it's a really good one about what it's like sifting through all the propaganda, the U.S. propaganda while working with antiwar.com, all the great stuff that they do over there. Dave's rolling out stories every single day and it's really crucial to what antiwar.com does there. So I wanted to bring him on and talk about what, what his daily work schedules like and and then also get a little bit about his backstory and and stuff like that uh we also touch on china tensions and and, uh u.s tensions with russia now that we have fully withdrawn from afghanistan so these interviews kind of go together i just wanted to have this interview with scott uh to focus solely on the afghanistan war being that he did write the book on the thing so Remember to subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Here's Scott. All right, everyone, so I have the great Scott Horn back on again. It's always good to have you back. It's It's been a while, and I, I think the last time we actually talked was towards the end or at the beginning of where Biden announced that he, he would extend the withdrawal deadline, and he broke Trump's deal. Um, mm-hmm. A lot's happened since then, you know. <laughs> A war's done now, and you've been on Fox News a few times, so I just wanted to bring you on and, and talk about it. You know, it's kind of a surreal experience for me because I'm only 21, and this war is about as long as my or as old as I am. Um, so it, it's it's pretty crazy, uh, and I'm wondering just with you and how much you focus on this issue. How does it feel? Does it feel as surreal? Um, yeah, and what are your thoughts? Well, the whole damn thing is just a shame, man. Um, you know, I'm happy to see the New York Times finally admit that, oh, yeah, by the way, Mullah Omar tried to surrender at the end of November. You know, we talk about how they could have negotiated over bin Laden and all that. I always forget in that narrative that, you know, parallel to that, before they cornered bin Laden at Tora Bora, I mean, they didn't really even start heading over there until the very end of November, very beginning of December, right? So it's before that, that Omar had agreed to surrender to the United States. So how about on the condition that you go and get this bin Laden guy and bring him over, bring his head on a platter for us kind of thing, something like that, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, help us or stay out of the way while we go do this. We need to free up our Rangers down in Kandahar City. So you keep all your men at their camp doing nothing while we go and back up our friends at Tora Bora. Something, maybe anything. No. And still they just instead they just told them to go to hell. So and this is, you know, two weeks before bin Laden got away, three weeks before bin Laden got away. Um, but then so there you go. I mean, if the New York Times has it that never even mind just Al Qaeda, but that Mullah Omar and his men as a non-global reported, as is in my book from four years ago and whatever, but as a better damn reported that they had surrendered at the end of November, 2001. Um, that they recognized the new Karzai government, I think still in December, they said, well, Karzai is a good Pashtun from the Popolzai tribe from Kandahar province. That's good enough for us. His father was a tribal chief and all this kind of thing. We know him good enough for us. His government is Islamic and legitimate, even as installed by the United States of America in their place. They didn't say this will be the mother of all battles and we're coming back. And one day the South will rise again. They didn't say that. They said, we recognize the new government as Islamic and legitimate. Just let us get along. And the Bush government told Mullah Omar and they told Jalaluddin Haqqani and they told Gubaldin Hekmatyar, oh, you guys can go to hell and made enemies out of them all. 
and then fought them for 20 years and then lost. Yeah, and it's it's not just that. Like they could have ended the war within just a couple of months, but they also had plenty of time to catch Bin Laden before the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. And we'll you- get back to that in a sec, but where I should have trailed off with that whole thing is, well, wait a minute. If the New York Times says we didn't even have to have a war at all, that our guys could have been home by Christmas, essentially. And we'll talk about Torbor in a sec if you want. But then what does that say about Iraq War II, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, all the terror wars in Mali and Niger and Chad and Sierra Leone and Burkina Faso and fighting Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines? 20 years of terror war, not just Afghanistan, but all across the region kicked over all of Mesopotamia, the Levant, and North Africa. And you can't make this stuff up, what they did. They exploited September 11th. They might as well have done it as an inside job for the degree of cynicism to which they exploited that tragedy to then get away with absolute bloody murder. You know? And and you always- just unreal. Yeah, you always draw attention to the Bob Woodward book where Donald Rumsfeld essentially says that he's going to exploit this entire thing. Yep. And Bush too. Yeah, Bush and, and Rumsfeld. In fact, there were times where I guess Cheney's a little paranoid about who's taking notes. So he pipes down and lets, you know, Rumsfeld and Bush lead the charge. And it is, you know, it's in Bush at war. It's kind of all you need right there. You know, W. Bush told the National Security Council, I don't know if Stephen Hadley or whoever was in charge, Take all the stuff and give it to Bob Woodward. You know, he's America's court historian. He'll do the right job. He'll write it right. And so they just gave him everything. And then Woodward, you know, I quote him in the book. Um, I forget if it's in Fool's Errand or Enough Already or maybe both. Where I say Woodward quotes Bush saying, you know, as long as Osama, as long as Osama bin Laden is either dead or on the run, then that's a good enough job done there. And Woodward says, well, I mean, by that standard, the mission was already accomplished there. You know, and then I I write in my book that I can't really tell if Woodward is joking or not. You know what I mean? Like, this is either a very dry humor or Woodward is entirely blind to the irony himself. You know, that he's saying, and you know what, man? My old lady had, uh, you know, was a consultant and a kind of co-producer, whatever you call it, on this movie, 9-11, Press for Truth. And she made me watch about half of it or two-thirds of it the other day. And man, there's a great quote in there of General Richard Myers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying that, yeah, no, look, just like W. Bush in March of 02, he's so ham-handed trying to get the new narrative across to you. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, getting bin Laden is not the goal. You don't want to do that. Yeah, we definitely don't want to focus on killing that guy. Or, um, yeah, because, you know, um, there's a school of thought now that says it's more important to get the middle managers. Oh, oh, okay. That's why to let the leader of the organization go is because somebody says that, hey, Killing operational guys is also, you know, relevant. Yeah. Rather than just the leadership. And then they hide behind that and go, yeah, no, so we would let them go. You know, they're still rolling out the narrative that uh, the Taliban harbored Osama bin Laden. Like, I, I try to listen to a bunch of different sources. Well, like, I mean, that much is true. I mean, they, he lived there since 1996. Yeah, but, but and, like as an excuse to like essentially having a 20 year war there. Like they're, they're oh, still saying right. that that's a reason we should stay. Yeah, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that you hear from people who don't know anything about the war at all, right? Yeah. I mean, you kind of get, there. Pe- yeah, there are people now who are saying that, well, the Taliban didn't take over the country until we left. So if we hadn't left, they wouldn't have taken over the country. But <laughs> okay, but you got to admit that you don't know anything about it then. <laughs> because in fact, that's why we left. It's because they're taking over the whole country. Yeah. And so the question was, are we going to let them finally descend on the Bagram Air Base and kill our last few guys there like the MBM Fu? Or are we going to just go ahead and get the hell out of there? You know, um, 
which that's where the French got their asses kicked at the end of their Vietnam War, by the way. Dien Bien Phu, you should read all about it. It's great. Mm. Horrible, but yeah, you know what I mean. So, I mean, yeah. And I, yeah, there are a lot of extremely uninformed opinions going around about all of that. When the reality is, as Biden said, that if we're going to break the deal and stay, then we have to escalate. A few thousand troops is not even force protection for their own selves. We're going to need tens of thousands of troops. And then what's the lesson? We've done this over and over and over again. If we do this, it'll only drive more people into the ranks of the insurgency. They're not going to stand and fight. They're guerrillas. They're going to melt away. They're going to go home. And then our guys are going to stand around. And then when they leave, all these guys are going to come back outside again. It's just, we've already done this. We've done it over and over again, including at one point we had up to 140,000 combat forces on the ground there. Although not that the Europeans did much fighting, but um, you know, 100,000 anyway. And it didn't accomplish anything. That was 10 years ago. So, you know, the people who say, oh, if only we had stayed, we'd have been able to hang on to the status quo. They're just, they don't know what they're talking about or they're lying. Yeah. I do want to get into some of the other arguments that I've been hearing, but but first I'm wondering, so did Mullah Omar try to hand over Osama bin Laden three times? Yes. Okay. So here's how it goes. And this is all in Fool's Aaron. It's in both books, actually. Um, the first response was, the Taliban would turn over bin Laden and his associates as soon as to um, a Muslim country, any country that's a member of the Association of Muslim Conference is what it's called. Yeah, uh, it's a strange name. Um, the World Muslim Conference, whatever. Um, but on the U.S. providing evidence of bin Laden's guilt. And Colin Powell went on Meet the Press and said, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to write up a dossier. He is the Secretary of State. I'm going to write up a dossier. We're going to show at least some of our evidence that bin Laden did it. But then they never did that. And Bush said, no negotiations. So then the second attempt was, look, we'll turn him over to the Pakistanis. Again, give us some evidence that he did it, which they had plenty of evidence that they did it. They knew the attack was coming all summer. And they knew, you know, certainly as soon as it happened, who was responsible for it. The guys from the Malaysia meeting. You know, this is where it all, you know, comes from. Um, and, uh, and so they said, then we'll turn them over to the Pakistanis. Now, the story is that Pervez Musharraf turned that down and said, well, we can't provide, we can't guarantee bin Laden's safety. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll put his dead body on trial then. I mean, we want him. What are you talking about? Now, I don't know what was behind that. I sort of presume that the CIA or, you know, the Americans told him to say no and to botch that at that point. I don't think he would have obstructed a real American effort to get their hands on bin Laden at the time. So I presume that that was, you know, in cooperation and consultation with the Americans, they decided that, but I can't prove that. I'm just saying it's, that's my speculation, but it was that Musharraf turned down the deal, the, turned down the offer essentially. Then after the bomb started falling on October the 8th, they issued one last surrender. And this was, we'll turn them over to any third country in the world presumably not including Israel, but they didn't say that. We'll turn them over to any third country in the world and without evidence of uh, being presented of his guilt. And Bush said, too little, too late, forget it, it's on. And that was it, and just ignored it and kept the thing going. So That's yes, I mean, Bush said, no negotiations, hand him over. And they said, look, man, let us save a little bit of face here. Give us a, peep, a, a piece of paper that has a couple of intercept quotes on it or something so that we can say that you proved it to us that bin laden did this and we'll give them to you i said no negotiations towelhead yeah but i'm trying to give you this guy man you know shut up and hand him over you know that's they did that it was all just like that you know quite deliberately and then when they say okay fine we'll just hand him over too little too late and then it's also in the woodward book and um in other places, too, I think Susskind writes about this as well, that, you know, Condoleezza Rice and George Tenet, both the National Security Advisor and the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, said, listen, we really ought to be focusing just on the Arabs, on Al-Qaeda, and we ought to be showing the Taliban and telling the Taliban that, look, we really don't want to kill you guys. Stay out of our way. We're going to, you know, focus on the guys that attacked us here. 
And then immediately that gets shouted down and shot down by the other Hawks that, and, you know, even though Rumsfeld, um, and he really did behave this way. Like this isn't BS. This was part of his whole thing was he wanted to focus on light and fast air power and special operations forces. This was his whole idea of transformation of the military is to, you know, essentially screw the army in favor of SOCOM and the air force. And so this was one of his test cases. We're going to go light and fast at special operations forces on the ground and air power in the air. And we don't want to get bogged down in some big Vietnam like quagmire trying to remake Afghanistan. That would be a huge mistake. So we just want to do it like this. That was his whole point of view. At the same time, though, when the CIA and Connolly's Rice were recommending that, man, we really ought to focus just on Al Qaeda. You want to talk about light and fast. Let's focus just on the actual attackers and leave everybody else alone. Nope, that's too narrow. We'll be done too soon. And we don't want that to happen. And this is the, their quote after quote after quote of especially Bush and Rumsfeld. Of course, you know, Wolfowitz was chiming in so often that we need to attack Iraq that at one point Bush had his chief of staff, Andrew Card, go over and tell him, listen, we're not talking to the deputies right now. You need to be quiet and sit at the back of the room, you know, whatever, because he just kept interrupting. And yeah, but what about Saddam Hussein over and over and over again? But then I think even Cheney was saying, look, guys, I mean, we have to go to Afghanistan before we go to Iraq. It'll just look too crazy if we start bombing Iraq first. You know, even Cheney was like, guys, <laughs> come on, you know, and, and this was Tony Blair, too. On the record, Tony Blair said he beg had to beg Bush. Listen, man. You can't start bombing Baghdad before you start bombing Kabul. Okay. You can't, you can't go after Saddam before you go after Osama. I mean, for God's sake, I understand that, you know, some of your hawks are worried that we're going to get too bogged down in Afghanistan to go to Iraq. But I'm just telling you, you got to at least make a superficial show of force over there before you turn around the other way. This was the thinking going on in the White House at the time. They didn't give a damn about catching the guilty. They wanted to go to Baghdad. And if that meant letting bin Laden escape, they didn't give a damn about that, man. It's so clear. And, you know, um, it's in the book, uh, the Gary Bernson book, Jawbreaker, that he's uh, on the line, you know, accepting surrender because the air power was just decimating the Taliban's, you know, standing army positions, just absolutely blowing them to hell. And so they're desperately trying to surrender. And one of the Taliban leaders gets on the radio with Gary Bernson. And he's like, here's a CIA guy with a couple militia guys with him. And he's got a whole division of Taliban trying to surrender to him. And, and Bernson says to the guy, you got any Arabs with you? And the guy says, yeah. And Bernson says, kill them. And the Taliban commander says, hang on. And then he can hear in the background machine gun fire where they rounded up or lined up the Arabs up against the wall and machine gun them all to death. The Arabs that were helping them fight the Northern Alliance yesterday. And they lined him up and shot him. Goes to show exactly how much the Taliban gave a damn about these Al-Qaeda guys, about Arab-born fighters in their country when it came to saving their own skin. They'd have been perfectly happy to give up bin Laden and them. And instead, as has been documented numerous times, I mean, I make the case, it's a circumstantial case, but I make it in fool's errand, but I ain't the only one. I mean, the story's been out there kind of all along. The Rangers, and this is in Jawbreaker by Bernson, and it's in Kill Bin Laden by Tom Greer, uh, a.k.a. Dalton Fury, who was the Delta Force commander on scene there. They begged and begged and begged and begged for Green Berets and Rangers and Marines to come and reinforce them. Or at least they begged for Rangers and Green Berets. The Marines were also in Kandahar and begged to come, you know, ask permission to come and help them. And they were denied. And they were left to rely on local Afghan militia foot soldier guys who would go home every night. And this went on for, you know, two and a half weeks until bin Laden got away. And they did call in air power. And that air power could have been successful in killing bin Laden. But they clearly were not willing to give it everything they had. And to just let, oh, the fog of war and these kind of narratives obscure the fact that they knew they had him cornered on three sides with the Pakistani border below, you know. And then they just, they refused to seal the border. And then once he crossed the border, they pretended like, oh, no, who could ever chase him? 
The only excuse ever given I've ever heard was, well, we didn't want to stir up a few Pakistani tribal people on the border region there. Well, why the hell not? I mean, we're hunting a six and a half foot Arab. Kindly stand out of the way. You want to throw yourself in front of him? Well, that's your problem. And, you know, I'm not a militarist, but I'm just saying. You're tracking Osama bin Laden. Pakistan is a friendly nation. You know, they talk about it like our troops would have had to cross the border into China or into Russia, where they clearly are not welcome to cross that border. But here we're talking about Pakistan. You know, that's like saying we're not allowed to chase them across the border into Canada. I'm sure they'll make an exception for hot pursuit of an international terrorist who just killed 3,000 of our people. And Pervez Musharraf already was bowing and scraping and at your service, your highness Bush, you know, already had been. It's in the book, 88 Days to Kandahar, that uh, Robert Grenier, the CIA station chief in Islamabad, had already worked out deconfliction with the Pakistani army and frontier corps because they expected the Delta Force to come across the border on Al-Qaeda's heels, and they wanted to make sure to prevent friendly fire. It was already set up. And so then why didn't the Delta Force chase him? Well, they begged for permission to chase him over and over and over again. And, and you read Bernson and Greer both say, it was just a mystery. Why? It was so mysterious. Jeez, no matter how hard we scratched our heads, we just couldn't figure out why they wouldn't give us permission to do the things we wanted to do to kill the highest level target imaginable in the war on terrorism. Come on. You and I both know why. They needed an enemy. And if the American people believe that, yeah, that's what happens when you mess with us, we kill you by Christmas and we're done, then that would screw up their whole narrative that we're fighting a global war on terrorism. Al-Qaeda is in 60 countries. They can attack us at any time armed with chemical weapons given to them by Saddam Hussein, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to build up that narrative, they needed bin Laden alive. They needed him out there somewhere. And as far as the Americans are concerned, Pakistan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Afghanistan, all these things are kind of one big blob of over there, the Muslim world somewhere. So if bin Laden's in Pakistan, he might as well be in Iraq, right? He might as well be in Gaza or whatever the propaganda is, wherever the terrorists need to be. And Cheney famously, or I don't know how famously anymore, but at one time this was noteworthy that Cheney had said, I forgot what year this was. I guess this would have been like 03, trying to justify the Iraq war. He goes, you know, Iraq is sort of the geographical center of where this kind of thing tends to originate from. You know, meaning let's just conflate all of these places together because I'm betting you don't know where the national boundaries are and what counts. But, you know, what if they said, uh, you know, the, the Arabian nations all ganged up on us and invaded us. And they said, well, North America is the general kind of region where the Zetas drug ring operates. You know, that's why we're invading Wisconsin is because the Zetas down on the east coast of Mexico. Right. Or whatever it is. It's they're clearly lying. They were clearing, clearly obfuscating and they and they did everything they could. And look, I'm sorry, you were just a toddler at the time. But for those of us who are already adults and living through the thing, if you didn't believe in it, then, oh, my God, what a cynical, manipulative, dishonest bunch of crap. Are you kidding me? You know, for a year and a half. Ooh, Saddam's going to get you. Saddam's going to get you. Well, what's taking him so long? Right? You guys are threatening me for a year and a half, but Saddam's not doing nothing. And I know because I was driving a cab at the time, so I'd meet with random samples of the general public on this all the time. Well, Saddam did 9-11. Saddam did 9-11. Come on. No, he didn't. And not even W. Bush is claiming that. Oh, yeah? Well, you just think we should wait around until Saddam attacks us? Okay. First of all, one second ago, you believed that he had attacked us already, and you were ready to go to war. Now you admit, oh, that's just not true at all. But now you just believe because why? That Iraq, Iraq is getting ready to attack the United States of America? 
Come on. It's bullshit, man. You could invade any country in the world. We could nuke Rio de Janeiro and say, oh, what are you going to do? Wait around until Brazil attacks us? Who says they were gonna? Yeah. Nobody. Same as in the case with Iraq. You could have picked any country over there. You know, at least the Saudi princes had bankrolled the damn thing and whatever. Iraq had nothing to do with it whatsoever. Saddam Hussein's Iraq wasn't going to attack the United States of America ever, ever, ever. None of his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons inherited that dictatorship. Were they going to attack the USA, please? And yet, they got away with lying. You know, uh, they got away with frightening people into war. And, you know, there are people whose families were destroyed over this kind of thing, right? Where the dad says to the daughter, I can't believe you're such a stupid, un-American, commie, hippie that you don't support the war against the evil terrorists who attacked us. And then she screams at him, no, you fat, stupid, old Fox News watching idiot. Saddam didn't do it. They're manipulating you. And he went, well, you don't love America. And she went, well, screw you. And then they never talked to each other again. That happened thousands of times, tens of thousands of times across this country where you know, George W. Bush says USA means we torture people to death with pride. And then son said, yeah, well, I used to respect you. Now I don't. Screw you. Because the father, and I'm not talking about my family, by the way, my dad's good on all this shit. But the father chose his political identity, which if you told him in 2000, you're going to vote for Bush and within three years, you're going to be you know, deep throating him and regurgitating why we all need to support torturing people to death. He would have not believed you. Now here he is a few years later arguing that, yeah, that's what the red, white and blue means. We torture people to death. That's what's great about America. And screw you, you commie, pinko, homo, liberal hippie for refusing to do what's necessary to defend America from some crappy little country that never threatened us ever. Right. And then and the 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 uh, partisan, you know, hard feelings and all that that came from that that are still lasting, you know, then came, of course, the whole backlash from Bush was Obama. And then you have the entire right wing backlash against a black guy named Obama being and a Democrat of all things. You know, if the first black president had been a Republican, well, that would have been one thing. But man, having him be a Democrat where now all the right-wingers got to take two steps back to where their grandpa was standing on race two generations ago and all of this. All of that was because of the consequence of the war. You know, no Iraq War II, no Barack Obama, no Barack Obama, no Donald Trump, no Russiagate. All this where now all the liberals are all completely and totally in bed with the national security state from the Trump years. CIA and FBI protect me from the elected president. And then that all bleeds right over into what? They, their total abandonment of my body, my choice when it comes to masks and vaccines and every other kind of thing. If, if everybody had to have a chip in their head to monitor their vaccine status, they'd go for it now. And, and why? Because of Trump, the backlash to Obama, the backlash to George W. Iraq War II and torture and lies and murder and the cynicism of the 2000s. And look, America had all kinds of partisan differences and racial problems and all other different problems in the 1990s, too. But so much of this just I mean, and look at the economic uh, crash of 08 of and then the bubble that came after that and the crash that came from that. I mean, we were due for a crash last year anyway. It was the governor lockdowns that finally forced the issue. But we were we were due for another economic calamity anyway. And then, you know, but that look at 08. It brought the entire world into a state of depression from the bubble that Bush and, and Greenspan and Bernanke printed to try to make the war seem free and all the dislocation that's come from that and, and all of the deepening of the partisan divisions in America because of that as well. And then you have, you know, as the centrist establishment is discredited as represented by the Bushes, Obamas and McCain and Biden and all these people, Biden is back, but not really as a vote of confidence in the establishment, but just a vote against Donald Trump's absolute disruptiveness and destabilization, you know, but he's 
it's hard to even say Biden is the last gasp of the establishment. He's just the last stand in they could put in there. But he doesn't represent the American people rallying back to the center in any meaningful way. In fact, you know, as the center is discredited, people are moving further and further to, towards the socialist left and the nationalist and populist right for good and for ill. Because you know what, they're a lot, you know, the socialist left and the populist right are a lot better than the center on some really important things. But they're a lot worse than the center on some really important things too. And, you know, what we need is liberty and we're, you know, in danger of becoming a more and more of, a, of an authoritarian state, especially in terms of economic controls, but also, you know, over people personally. And all this is just unforced error. This error. This never had to happen at all. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, goddamn, people should be absolutely as mad as hell about it. And especially, you know, I know that this has been really difficult for, you know, millions of people have been, uh, millions of Americans have served in these wars, have gone and fought in the army and, and uh, Marine Corps, et cetera, in Iraq and Afghanistan and come back again. And that's a lot of people been through a lot of grief and a lot of stress and, you know, um, put their families through the ringer if they survived at all in order to participate in all this. And now they got to all look back on it and, and finally admit, you know, like Palpatine said, now at the end, you understand this, this whole thing was just completely a fool's errand all along, never had to be this way at all. And then, but if that's true, then, and it is, then there should be hell to pay for the Republicans and the Democrats who put us through this. And for the generals at the Pentagon who lied and said, can do, sir, let's do it. We can do it. Let's escalate. It'll work uh, while making things nothing but worse the whole time. Um, but I mean, and look, that's why we're in this situation, right? Because there is no accountability, right? Bush should have been forced from office in 2004, but he wasn't. So by the time he was finally done, the backlash came in the form of Obama because things have been that much worse under Bush, you know, for another four years. But as soon as they didn't have the weapons, he should have had to resign in the summer of 03. I mean, not that that was a good enough excuse for war anyway. Yeah. But but when there's no nuclear program of any description whatsoever, and there's not a single warehouse full of mustard and VX and sarin gas, he and Cheney and the, all the neoconservatives should have been forced from office immediately. They should have gone to prison. And they were not held accountable. None of them were held accountable. And so then... You know, it just it's like a dirty snowball it just keeps rolling downhill. Things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And you look at TV now as everything goes to hell in Afghanistan. And then who do they bring on to comment? H.R. McMaster, David Petraeus, Stanley McChrystal, Max Boot, all the guys who said that this is what we have to do. All the pundits and all of the generals who said that we have no choice but to escalate and got it wrong this whole time are the only ones who get to come up there and say, we can't leave now or that proves that I was wrong. So we got to stay. And the people who were right all along are completely shut out. Or yeah. they already got old and died like Justin Romando. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to talk about the withdrawal and, and how it ended so poorly. Um, I think the last time we talked, we, we did talk about how Biden extended the, the deadline and essentially broke the deal. Mm -hmm. How much do you attribute like, the, the collapse of the withdrawal and how poorly it looks to that. And how much do you attribute it just to the fact that the government isn't capable of doing anything right? Yeah. I mean, it's the, the former is a subset of the latter there. Um, so first of all, you know, I, I was a little bit wrong about that. Um, I was quite a bit wrong about that. I thought, look, they're breaking the deal. They're breaking the deal. They're going to mm -hmm. kick down the can down the road. They're going to keep doing it. But that wasn't really right. And what was right was, Biden was bending the deal, but not breaking it. And he obviously immediately told the Taliban that we're kicking the can down the road to September, but we really mean that. And we've had a change of government here from Trump to Biden and all that. So we're going to postpone this, but we're not going back to war. So don't you go back to war against us. We're not sending more troops. We're not restarting the war. We're not breaking the deal. We're just postponing it. But then that was a huge mistake. Because the Taliban said, okay, fine, we're not going to attack you. We're going to hold a peace deal with you. But they started taking over the country on schedule anyway. And, you know, the start of the fighting season was on. 
And they went ahead and started taking over and they just walked right in and started taking over provincial capitals and military bases. They had, you know, a pretty brilliant plan to head the Northern Alliance off at the pass by seizing Kunduz and Mazari Sharif before anybody could make a break for it to try to create that kind of, you know, Northern exclusion zone to keep them out. And, um, what it took, what, five weeks for them to six weeks for them to essentially conquer the whole country. And um, the Biden people should have been gone already, right? But see, here's the hard place that they put themselves in. The only way, because okay, uh, first of all, just to be specific here, what was so bad about the withdrawal was one, they left all these weapons in the hands of the Taliban. And two, they left people behind. And they were ent essentially entirely dependent on the Taliban for security as they're getting their people to the airport and out of the country, um, which the Taliban did a pretty good job of keeping their end of the deal and ushering the Americans out. But still, that was a major humiliation for them. And there was the suicide bombing at the Abbey Gate there that killed, uh, I think, 13 Americans, some 11 Marines, a soldier and a Navy corpsman, I believe it was, uh, who were killed there. So that was absolutely a catastrophe. Is there, but, is there uh, anything about whether or not uh, U.S. soldiers were a part of that and they actually, like some of the deaths were a result of firing into a, the crowd? Well, I don't know if it's confirmed, but it, there are multiple reports that people fired from the top of the walls. I heard people say that it was American soldiers, but it seemed like that was just a presumption. Other people said that it was CIA-backed militias, you know, guys, locals who worked for the CIA from the National Directorate of Security who were up there doing it. Um, and that would seem to fit with the 170 killed total yeah. there that, you know, somebody freaked out and opened up with machine gun fire after that. There was a BBC reporter who talked to a doctor, said that these people all had bullet holes coming in like this, you know, in their shoulders and necks and chests, but all high up on their body and all apparently from this kind of trajectory. Um, so I don't know about that. But anyway, so there's the problem here, right? Biden, in order to avoid the mess of having this, uh, you know, leaving behind all the weapons and the disastrous evacuation, he would have not only had to stick with the deal, but he would have had to tell the whole truth to the American people that the government and the army that we have built there is a joke and it cannot last. And yeah, it sucks, but we're withdrawing all support for them. That means we're taking all our weapons, all our trucks, all our tanks, all our light arms, all our helicopters, everything, and we're taking them with us or we're destroying them. Otherwise, they're going to end up in the hands of the Taliban. And we're taking all of our diplomats, our mercs, our spies, and everybody, and we're getting the hell out of the country because we don't think that the Afghan government in Kabul can stand without us. And once we withdraw support for them, they're going to fall anyway. And so we... We can't have a fall of Saigon type emergency where our people are in danger on the way out the door. So we're just going to take care of it now. And that should have been starting on January 22nd through May the 1st. But now think of what, first of all, there's no way in the world that they're going to tell that much truth about anything, right? We're talking about the Democrats. But secondly, they decide instead that their narrative was, it's okay for us to leave. Because we've built a really great government in Kabul and a really great 300,000-man army that is sure to stand and protect that government in Kabul. And so that's why it's okay for us to leave. It's, you know, mission accomplished, victory achieved. We did what we were setting out to do, create this great government and military. Well, you know what? Honesty is the best policy. And you go and, you know, have a big false premise like that and then base your policy on a big false premise like that, then everything ends up going to hell. But now, so if they had told the truth and said, look, what we've built is a house of cards and we're going to take it with us now rather than letting the Taliban get their hands on it all. And we're going to get our civilians out now rather than letting them fall into possible danger later. They would have been accused of undermining the, the Afghan army. It would have, they would have been blamed. Of course, the Afghan army folded. You took all their trucks and weapons and guns away. And of course, the Kabul government folded. You withdrew all of your people in a major sign of no confidence, right? They would have been accused of causing those things. And yet look what happened. They, the army fell anyway. And the Kabul government fell anyway. And all those weapons ended up in the hands of the Taliban. And all those civilians were then put in danger. And the 
withdrawal was turned into this significant humiliation on the way out and all of these things. So, but that's really the only alternative in terms of ways to do it would have been to tell the whole truth and rip the damn bandaid off and just yeah, say, he, look, Biden, you know, Biden even used the words. He's like, there won't be any scenario where a helicopter is on the roof of the embassy. And it's like, why even put yourself in that position? It's just right. so stupid. He's an idiot. Yeah. They're the Democrats. This is the best they can do. And they're the military. And look, I mean, I'm sure you saw me on, on Twitter, say on July 14th, I got, I got bad news. I got a, a guy tells me they're preparing to drop paratroopers back on the Bagram air base and retake the Bagram air base. And then I updated it like 10 minutes later with, Oh, he's clarifying to me. Now my source, we're not talking about reescalating the war against the Taliban at all. We're talking about, oops, we shouldn't have given up the Bagram air base yet. Cause we're going to need it for a fall of Saigon moment. That's going to come sooner than later. Yeah. They're talking about the Kabul government's going to last months. Don't think so. So we're going to put all our paratroopers back in there and get the Kabul, get the Bagram air base ready to evacuate everybody out of the country. They got two airstrips, not one. And, you know, a much better situation for being able to run it there. And that was July 14th. They didn't do that. They never did. And by, what, the second week in August, I guess, he was telling me, well, we can't go to Bagram now. The whole place is crawling with Taliban or the whole area up there near it. And then a few days after that, the ANA gave the base over to the Taliban. Now you definitely can't drop your paratroopers back in there because you'll definitely be breaking the ceasefire because you have to be in a major firefight with the Taliban to take back over the thing. And you'd think that maybe they could have negotiated that, look, man, we just want that base. You guys clear out of there. We just want the base so that we can withdraw for our evacuation but they didn't pull that off. I don't know if they even tried. And so instead they're left with the Kabul airport. And the same guy was telling me, they were really worried that they were gonna have to go in there and it was gonna be like D-Day. They're gonna have to go in there and blast the hell out of everyone in order to get their people safely to the airport, leave no man behind and all this kind of thing. The idea being that when the Taliban seized the capital, that it was gonna be total chaos. And that, you know, our guys would be facing a Black Hawk Down type massacre or something like that. Well, it just wasn't like that at all. The Taliban, luckily, just walked right in, seized the capital city with hardly a shot fired. And then they kept to their ceasefire and they let the Americans get on their planes and get the hell out. So it could have been much, much worse there. And then, um, by the way, there's an article in Politico about that suicide bombing. Remember, they knew it was coming. They had warned in the media, not just in Afghanistan, but they warned in the American media that we have reason to believe that ISIS is going to try to do a suicide attack or something on this base or on the airport. And then it happened. Well, they wanted to close that gate. They were ready to close that gate. They kept it open for the Brits who were all holed up at a hotel somewhere. And we got to hold the gate open for a little while longer for a group of British people, civilians, whoever they were. And I don't know why it was that they had to go to the Abbey Gate, not the other gate, the South Gate or whichever other gate. Um, and that was why the guys and the Americans and the soldiers were there at the Abbey Gate still at the time of the suicide attack when they were supposed to have already cleared out of there. So, they yeah, I mean, the whole thing. Oh, and by the way, there's a thing in Vanity Fair about how after Benghazi, they created a new agency inside the State Department whose job it is to go around rescuing people in an emergency, in a hurry. And then this agency got more and more powerful during COVID, going around the world and rescuing American uh, citizens around the world and get, bringing them home, who were like stuck behind lockdowns and whatever kind of things, you know, all over the planet. And even though Barack Obama's government had created the project, Mike Pompeo loved it and thought it was great and championed it. So when Tony Blinken came in, as a matter of politics, he shut it down. And right. they had plans to expand it and raise it up a notch to a whole other level of authority. And Blinken came and poured cold water all over that. Said, no, you're gonna have to uh, you know, beg and ask and answer to four different, different undersecretaries before you're allowed to do anything. And we're gonna break your agency into six little pieces under, you know, other little different departments in the state and whatever. So the leader resigned 
and the thing essentially was was destroyed and replaced with nothing. Wow. And then so these are the guys then when the White House and or the Defense Department came to them and said, OK, so what are you guys doing planning you know, for your evacuation? They said, oh, well, we don't really have a way to evacuate anybody. So it's on you, Pentagon, to figure it all out for us and all this. And so you have like. I mean, goddamn, dude, it's like it's an episode of a thing on TV where it's just the whole thing is a government program. Yeah. You're telling me that right as it's you know what? It's just like me. I'll run a great foreign policy article at the Libertarian Institute. And then the other half of my brain will not think, hey, you ought to run that at antiwar.com too. Right? Like there's just no communication going on between the hemispheres of my brain. Right? Same thing here. Well, I hate Mike Pompeo. So I want to undo the thing he did. Yeah, but it's the spring of 2021 and Kabul is falling. (laughs) We have a major rescue mission coming up here right now so i understand you don't like mike pompeo and you want to ruin this project that he built up but didn't even originate but can't it wait till the fall maybe you know but nope we got our little politics and our little parochial concerns and all our little public choice theory crap over here and we got the fall of Kabul over here yeah. And the neurons don't cross. You know, the conversation is not had that like, hey, maybe we should put this on hold because that's more important. You know? Yeah. Well, I also interviewed Misty Winston about the the drone attack that, that killed the whole family. Uh-huh. Um, just because I think it really needs to be focused on that there, there's another area where the government absolutely just fails. And uh, they haven't even released the names of the ISKP members, right? Like the suspected... ISKP members. And I think the words they were using, it was like, we're, we're being judicious about the names that we're releasing, but they're not judicious when it comes to their drone pr- program. So right. it's, it's just, a perfect it, ending for that war, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody's saying how bad the, the outcome is with the withdrawal and everything, but like, what did you expect, man? This whole war has been like this. Yeah. And people thought the war was great until the withdrawal. Is that it? And then, so that the withdrawal includes this horrific suicide attack and then a drone attack on an innocent family or two in response on the way out the door is like, it's just, it's perfect, right? How else could it be? Yeah. How could anyone have expected it to end in any other manner than this? Mm. One last really bad drone strike on the way out the door, you know, which of course raises the question whether the CIA is going back to ally with the Taliban against ISIS-K and or in favor of what I'm really worried about, speaking of Mike Pompeo, that they're going to start backing the uh, East Turkestan Islamic movement, which Pompeo took off the terrorist list, which is a weaker group that they want to use against China. Mm-hmm. So that'll be, you know, the next stage is going back to the Bill Clinton years of backing the Taliban. Yeah, it's it's so weird. Like like how people were talking about they're they're using the Taliban to protect American soldiers. It just shows how stupid the whole thing was. Um, yeah. and, and then there was uh, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about um there there was this video that I listened to by Ben Shapiro. I, I listened to one of his podcasts and uh, he was saying that one of the reasons we we could stay and I think H.R. McMaster made the same point when he talked to Jake Tapper was that the cost, you know, the cost was low compared to every other engagement and, and what Biden's trying to do now with his infrastructure bill. And then another thing that, that Ben said was, and plus, we haven't had a combat death since February 2020. And then I proceeded to look up, well, when did the Doha agreement start? And sure enough, it was February 2020. So he doesn't even know, like, why there wasn't a combat death. Uh, right. I don't know. It's just. Well, and, and in fact, that that was fighting against ISIS in Nangarhar province. That wasn't the Taliban. I was fighting with the Taliban against ISIS at yeah. that point. I mean, the, the ceasefire kicked in in, uh, I, I believe, October of 2018 was the last time the Taliban were taking shots at our guys. Um, our Marines down in Helmand were helping keep them out of Lashkargah by, you know, essentially backing the uh, Afghan National Army there but not in direct combat. 
And then, yeah, I mean, what a red herring that, you know, um, she's all we have to do is just keep troops there. But then you don't need to know that that would necessarily mean breaking the deal with the Taliban and then restarting the war against American forces, which would then mean a massive escalation in troops over there if for nothing else for force protection. Yeah. And then, you know, the Taliban already controlled, you know, something like a supermajority of the country, at least at night. I mean, for a, for a guerrilla movement, they really were a shadow government that ruled the vast majority of the countryside. They stayed out of the provincial capitals because that'll get you bombed. You know, seizing fixed positions like that will get you bombed by B1s. But as long as they stayed mobile, they essentially ruled the whole country for, you know, something like 10 years now. Um, you know, the whole south and east of the country and, you know, certainly uh, had made major progress in the west, in Herat and up in the north. You know, they what, sacked Kunduz in 2015 and 2018. They seized Kunduz twice. It took American Green Berets to force them back out again. You know, that was like a test, I guess, of their power up in the north. Um, so, you know, and people keep sending me on Twitter Ben Shapiro videos Hey, Scott, you got to refute this. But I just ain't got the stomach to sit there and listen to this idiocy and, and you know, go through it. So I'm glad that you asked me. There's your refutation. This guy doesn't know the first thing about the war. You know, if, if you're going to stay, you're going to have to send tens of thousands more troops back and be in a war against the Taliban again uh, while they're at the height of their power. And, you know, frankly, I think they could have kept the Bagram Air Base they had enough firepower to keep off an army of foot soldiers with AKs, you know, but to what end, right? You leave the country in another 10 years or another 20 years, it looks exactly the same. Yeah. And so, yes, they could have kept them out of the provincial capitals, but still only temporarily, however long temporarily is. It's yeah, I, th totally I think it's false analysis, you know? Yeah, and I think it is important to talk about the fact that like we were giving air support to the Taliban or serving as their air force, I think is the way that it's put um, right. against ISIS. And I think especially when the, the uh, ISKP attack happened, there was, I mean, when I was talking to conservatives, I don't know where it would have come from, come from but it, it seemed as if they were conflating the Taliban and ISIS. And it, oh, yeah. goes, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, where if you just lump everyone together and and if the American people don't know the difference between Al Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, then, I mean, you're able to exploit the entire scenario. Right. And yeah, people came at me and goes, oh, see, you said this is impossible. This could never happen because the Taliban are such loyal friends. Well, actually, I never said that. I said it's in the Taliban's interest to usher us out the door in as cooperative a way as possible. I didn't say they don't make bad decisions. I said this time they seem to be more clever than cruel because yeah. it's in their interest to be. And then secondly, I don't believe for one moment. I don't even I never suspected for one moment that the Taliban were behind that suicide bombing. That's a bunch of crap. And the people who assume that, again, are people who don't know the first thing about the war, which is fine. Not everybody has to know anything about the war, but then you don't go around saying, yeah, that's why we got to stay. It was based on my complete ignorant misunderstanding of who's who and what's going on over there. And that's why ending a war is bad because see, the Taliban bombed us when the Taliban didn't bomb us. And it's all the more reason to get the hell out of there anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the, the permanent non sequitur for the last 20 years, a bunch of our soldiers died. So we got to send a bunch more of our soldiers over there so that they can also get killed to death too. But why does that make any sense unless you just skip the part where you're an idiot and you bought the premise that we're supposed to be sending soldiers to invade these foreign countries in the first place? And once you admit that that part was wrong, then sending more and more soldiers into the same meat grinder just to you know try to cover up for the fact that you shouldn't have the earlier ones doesn't really hold up anymore. You know, let these be the last dozen guys to die for a pile of bullshit. You know, a mistake. That's the famous Carrie uh, quote from the 70s. How do you ask a soldier to be the last one to die for a mistake? 
This isn't a mistake, man. There are plenty of people know better than this. They do it anyway, you know? Yeah, my, my hope is that just with how terrible this withdrawal looks, um, that people take it as a lesson that this is the consequence of occupation rather than the consequence of withdrawal because or withdrawal because it kind of seems as if people might think that well this is a reason why we shouldn't leave iraq um and i, I guess it is true that uh ap did a poll that said two-thirds of americans believe that we should have withdrawn but they they didn't agree with the actual withdrawal and how it turned out so i'm wondering and that aligns with the veteran poll that says two-thirds of veterans in iraq uh veterans believe that we should withdraw from afghanistan and iraq so I guess I'm wondering, do you have any hope for future withdrawals? And what do you think Biden's going to do in the future? Well, I mean, we have no good reason to be in Syria or Iraq at all right now. I mean, this cliche that, oh, we left Iraq and then ISIS came again. Fine. But if you're going to say stuff like that, you should first admit out loud that you don't know anything about it. But you heard that somewhere and you like sounding smart, repeating crap that you heard somewhere. Here's the part you're leaving out. Barack Obama's high treason for four years backing al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria next door. That's what created ISIS. And then, yes, it's true. There weren't American troops in Iraq to keep them from sacking Mosul. But uh, the Benedict Arnold maneuver from 2011 through 14, that's the important part of the story there. There was no ISIS until Barack Obama saved al-Qaeda in Iraq and put them to work fighting Bashar al-Assad in Syria and gave them billions of dollars and weapons in alliance with America's allies there in that war. That's what created ISIS. That's what created the Islamic State, not withdrawal from Iraq. Um, so, and that's when you'll hear all the time. In fact, when I was on Fox News, the guest earlier in the show made that same claim and just skated by with it, got away with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the reality is, and, you know, their excuse, there's a brand new great uh, Aaron Mate piece about troops uh, in Syria. I'm going to try to interview him on Thursday about this. Um, yeah, uh, tomorrow. Um, about how, oh, yeah, no, they say that they're there because there's ISIS in Syria. And the Kurds are not strong enough to defeat ISIS alone. Oh, yeah? How about the Syrian Arab army? You know, the armed force of the Syrian state government based in Damascus. Are they powerful enough to defeat ISIS if America would get the hell out of their way? Yes, obviously. What's left of ISIS there is four or five guys at a time hiding out in somebody's backyard somewhere. They don't control any territory whatsoever. They're no threat, you know, national or, you know, local or international or anything else. And if the Americans would leave, the Assad government could finish destroying them. And who could believe that that's the real motive for staying when America and their allies, the Turks, protect al-Qaeda in the Idlib province. Oh, no. So concerned about ISIS that didn't knock the towers down. Although, really, ISIS is just al-Qaeda in Iraq, so they are horrible sons of bitches. But, oh, we're so concerned about them. But we're not at all concerned about Abu Muhammad al-Jalani and uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and the other, you know, al-Qaeda groups, um, Arar al-Sham and Haras al-Din and whatever other groups there in the Idlib province where they're all being kept there safe by the Turks. Talk about their safe haven. This is why we can't leave Afghanistan. It'll be a safe haven for terrorists. When our government backs the world's worst safe haven for terrorists that's ever existed in the Idlib province to this day, you know, and, and backs them in uh, AQAP in their war against the Houthis down in Yemen as well. So uh, I like, I don't, it's too blue for this show. I was going to quote Bill Hicks, but um <laughs> Yeah, this terror war, it's not legitimate, folks. They're jerking your chain. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on, man. Um, it's always great to talk to you. And oh, yeah. I hope to do some work with you on the future with the De Defend the Guard Act and have you back in Montana. I know they really like you here. So uh, happy to do it, man. Yeah, let's I think I told you. I, I, oh, I told you when I saw you um, at, uh, at the um, goddamn thing in Orlando, the. Um, the uh, Young Americans for Liberty thing. I met a guy who is the brother of a state representative in Montana. And he was like, man, you guys were the talk of that whole state house that day. 
And it wasn't just the state Senate. It was all reverberating through the House of Representatives or House of Delegates, whatever it's called there, too. And that he said it was my talk that got that thing passed, that wow. they just loved it. And whatever, which that was the main part. The main part was he did mention that. But he said, you know, that whole effort from Americans for Prosperity and Concerned Veterans for America there that and, and just we caused a riot, man. We, we caused a sensation there in the Montana state Senate and house. And he was like, man, you heard it from me. And I heard it from my brother. Like this was a big deal. And then they did it. They passed it. The a demand that the U S uh, Congress repeal the AUMF of 2001. So that's really huge. So yeah, I can't wait to come back, man. Yeah, definitely. And you know, if, even if CVA doesn't push it, um, I, I'm trying to talk to him right now. I think that the Mises caucus probably will here. I'm, I'm going to try to make that happen, but great. Yeah. Let's definitely stay in touch and, uh, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, Liam. Appreciate it. Yep. It's the weekend and we can let go. It's the full send and it's the get go. It's the get go.